our scripture reading this morning. God's word is page 818 in your pew Bibles, page 818. We're finishing up Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 46. Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. These are the words of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we need ears to hear this morning. Just looking at this text... I know exactly where our hearts are as a church because they're exactly where mine was reading this text earlier this week. We we begin to think, this must be some mistake. There must be some exaggeration here. Jesus can't possibly be saying what we hear him saying. So Lord, give us ears to hear. Help us to, to grasp the heights of what Christ has for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to give you this morning three conversion testimonies, okay? Three conversion testimonies. And I want you to think of the one that sounds the most unusual. Here's the first one. I was a workaholic and neglected most everything else. I knew that I was good at what I did and I worked hard at it, 60 to 70 hours a week was my standard. The more I worked, the more money I made. And the more money I made, the more secure I felt. My work was my identity, and money was my God. If I wasn't working, I wasn't happy. And then a co-worker invited me to church, and I came to see my work as an idol and my greed as a sin. I was convicted of my sin, I repented, and I began to trust in Jesus Christ as my only hope. Here's the second one. I was a glutton for pleasure. If it felt good, I chased it. A good meal was never good enough until I couldn't eat another bite. A glass of wine was never enough. I needed the whole bottle. Sex with my wife wasn't enough. I wanted it from whoever else was offering My entire life was built around pleasing myself. But I heard the gospel. And I came to see that in my selfish pursuit of pleasure, I was rebelling against God. I had sinned against God, and I needed saving from myself and from his righteous wrath towards me. I'm so thankful that he gave me Jesus as my Savior. Here's the third one. I loved my family more than anything else. I would do anything for them. To me, 
My husband and my kids were my everything. I longed for my husband's approval. I longed for my kids to love me. If my husband was disappointed in me, I was devastated. If my kids disrespected me, I couldn't take it, and I would despair. I always put my family first. And then I heard the gospel and realized that my life was disordered. I had made an idol out of my family. I repented of my sin and began to treasure Christ above all else. Now, I've heard those first two testimonies before. I've never heard that third testimony. Have you? And yet, think about it, it's no different in comparison to the first two, is it? Think about it, in each of these testimonies, our, our convert has taken something that is a good gift from God and made it an absolute. Work, money, food, alcohol, sex, marriage, kids, all those are good things. But when any of them becomes our life's pursuit... We've made an idol out of them. Each each of these people, even the stay-at-home mom whose family was the center of her life, each of them was under the wrath of God for worshiping the gift rather than the giver. And they would remain under God's wrath until they were born again into Christ and began to treasure Christ above all else. Now, do you believe that? This is exactly what we're going to see in our text this morning. I think think that's really hard for us to grasp, isn't it? It's hard for us to grasp because of just how important the family is. Not just in our culture, in every culture. Every culture everywhere understands that there is something foundational about the family. The family is the bedrock of civilization, isn't it? It is the first little society. It is the first little government. It's where you learn discipline. It's where you learn morality. It's where you learn respect and a work ethic that will keep you alive. It's where you learn your own history and who you are and what you're supposed to love and what you're supposed to hate. And we know this. As the family goes, so goes the civilization. We are born with that understanding that the family is vitally important to humanity. And if the family is that important for us, if we, in in an individualistic modern culture, understand even now how important the family is, how how much more important do you think the family was for this collectivist culture of first century Jews. These these are the people that are hearing Jesus' teaching in our text this morning. For them, family was second only to God himself. Think about the Ten Commandments we read earlier. The first four are about how we are to love and worship God. Right? There are no other gods. We shall not worship God with images. We shall not take his name in vain. And we shall keep the Sabbath day holy because he made it holy. It's our, how we worship God. And then the next six commandments are about how we love others. Those who are not us. 
Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's the first of those. The Apostle Paul calls it the first commandment with a promise. In other words, if you honor your father and mother, then you will have a prosperous life. And that commandment's place for us. Number one among the six love your neighbor commandments, that's informative for us. It's the, it's the foundational others commandment. The family is the first group of others that anybody is ever a part of. So for Jews coming out of Egypt, receiving this law from God, they learned that the honoring of the family was enormously important. Your family determined where you were in relationship to the tabernacle. Your family determined what type of work you did and what land you would inherit. For the Israelites, because of the importance of family, their their chain of priorities in life would have gone something like this. God first, family second, country third, others fourth. Fast forward a thousand years from the Exodus, and the Jewish people still understood that the most important group they could ever belong to was the family. And so their priorities were the same. And here, today, 2,000 years after that, I think we still understand that, don't we? Our chain of priorities is probably very similar. God first, family second, country third, others fourth. And that's pretty much the norm. For, For anybody who considers themselves religious, that's kind of a normal way of thinking. And and if you're not religious, it's probably just self, family, others. But, But Jesus changes everything. Whether you're religious, whether you're secular, not religious, Jesus changes everything. By necessity, he reorders everything. And so his priority list is this. God and his family first, others second. God and his family first, others second. Now, how are we going to get that from this text? Here are the three principles that we're going to see in our text that show us where this comes from. All right? So the first principle we're going to see in the text is that unbelieving family members are outsiders to the kingdom. The second one, Jesus' mission takes precedence over his blood relatives. And the third, those who have God as their father have Christ as their brother and the church as their closest family members. And we're going to take these one by one. If you didn't catch them just then, we'll get to them as we get to them. So the first one, unbelieving family members are outsiders to the kingdom. And in our text in verse 46, the context is that Jesus is, as far as we can tell, he's at somebody's house and he's teaching. And his followers are gathered around him in that inner circle. And notice where Matthew places Jesus' mother and brothers. Look at verse 46. They're standing where? Outside. Asking to speak to him. Matthew even uses that word behold. I don't know if you remember how important that word is for Matthew. But he says, behold, look at this. Look, everybody, the mother and brothers are outside. Now, if you are a God 
first family second Jew which most Jews would have been and you're sitting there watching this unfold this is already troubling for you and I think Matthew has intentionally written things so that we feel the tension here Jesus' mother and brothers haven't been given priority seating among Jesus' closest friends they are literally outsiders to what's happening They can't even get close enough to Jesus to talk to him. They have to pass messages to him. They're outsiders. Now, why are they outsiders? Well, Jesus' brothers are not believers yet. They don't know that he's the Messiah. I think Jesus' mother is probably some sort of believer in that she knows that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean... She conceived by the Holy Spirit. You don't forget that. She knows that there's something special about this young man, but, but if she's there with her son's sinning by trying to get him to stop what he's doing, then we can at least conclude she doesn't understand what it means that he's the Messiah. And we know that they're trying to stop Jesus because of the way that Mark tells us this story. When, when he tells us about this incident, he tells us that the aim of Jesus' family is to get him to shut up because they believe he's out of his mind. And from a world, worldly perspective, think about what has taken place here. They're not too far off base, are they? This man has just said he's greater than the prophet Jonah. He's told all the people listening that he's greater than David's firstborn son, Solomon. Greater than the temple. He's insulted the most respected, admirable people in the community by calling them the children of vipers who are under the, under the control of Satan. And, and he's not just in that, he said that they will be judged by the Assyrians. Israel's enemies because they are leading the entire nation astray. That's not how you win friends and influence people. And Jesus' family aims to stop him. At the very least, they want to stop him because he's bringing shame to the family. He's embarrassing them. But it's also possible that they've heard the rumor that the Pharisees want to destroy Jesus. So they want to shut him up before it's too late. So, so think, think about it. If Jesus is not the promised Messiah, his family is doing the right thing. They're doing what any of us would do to protect our family members. But as Matthew shows us, they're on the outside. Not even allowed direct access to this leader of their family, the firstborn of their family. And what Jesus wants us to see is that unbelieving family are outsiders to the kingdom, his kingdom. So for us, following in step with our Savior, it's imperative that we think of family the way that Jesus does. If your siblings or your parents or your children are not believers, they should know. They should know by their interactions with you, something's wrong. They are outsiders to what is most precious to you. 
I'm not saying we're to be cruel to them. Jesus was never cruel to his family. He's not cruel, but he's honest with them. He's he's risking alienating them to ensure that they know that they're not a part of what he's doing. He's telling them, you're an outsider until I am your Lord. And while that seems harsh, and it does seem harsh, doesn't it? But it is the most loving thing that Jesus can do for them. Think about it. What if Jesus treated his family members as if everything were okay? Even though they thought he was crazy with all this Messiah business. So so around his followers, he's the son of God doing miracles and quoting scripture and teaching with authority. But then around his family members, he's just a totally different person. Not the Messiah. Just carpenter's son. Big brother. Just like old times. What, What type of witness is that to his family? In order for Jesus' family to know that they are not a part of his heavenly kingdom that is breaking into the world, they have to be treated as if they are not a part of that kingdom. Otherwise, they die without a savior. Well, by the grace of God, Jesus' mother and brothers will become believers. At the cross... One of Jesus' last great works is to ensure that Mary is placed under the care of what will be her younger brother in Christ, the Apostle John. Jesus' brother James will become one of the most important leaders in the Jerusalem church. He will write for us the book of James. And, and, And in many ways, as he's writing, he's restating the things that Jesus is teaching us. But if James never knew that he was in desperate need of a Savior, if it was always just like old times when Jesus was around James, if he never knew that he was missing the true Jesus, then he would not have been exposed to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that leads to repentance and faith. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, if you're a follower of Christ and you have a parent or a child or a sibling who is not a follower of Christ, it is not just like old times with them. It can't be. You belong to a different kingdom than they do. Your entire value system is different than theirs is. They should get a very strong sense when they are around you that there is an unexplainable distance between you. Not because you're treating them poorly, but because there is a true distance between you. You live in eternity. You are already seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. They live in the temporal. There is a very real, enormous gulf that you cannot bring them across by pretending that everything's okay. They need Christ. They need to live under his lordship. And they need that way more than they need you. Way more. And if we really, truly believe that the gospel is true, then we understand that. And I say that as a preacher, but I'm not very good at that. 
as your brother in Christ and as a brother to my own brother. It's much easier for me to just to talk about the good old days or work or school. It's, it's much easier for many of you to just talk about how the grandkids are doing. Anything, though, but that giant hole in the floor that's keeping you apart. Christian brothers and sisters, listen, we can truly love our lost family members by actually talking to them about the things of the Lord. If there's, if there's no evidence that they're believers, and by that I mean that they have no love for the Lord, their lives are, are by all accounts worldly, they're living in unrepentant sin, maybe they're, maybe they're decent, hardworking people, but there's just no fruit of salvation in their lives, you have to tell them. Don't lie to them and tell them that everything's okay. You say you love them and you don't want to hurt them. Love them enough to tell them the truth. Risk your relationship with them for the glory of Christ, for their salvation. And this is the hard part, especially for us parents. Be ready, because this is going to come up. Be ready to confess to them the ways that you might have been the one who led them astray to begin with. I know you know this, but we all need to be reminded of this. For those of you who are following Christ, no one else gets into the kingdom of heaven because they're related to you. If Mary, if Mary couldn't get in through giving birth to the Son of God, if Mary by faith had to be born again into him to be saved by him, then there's no way that anyone else anywhere can get in on someone else's merit. You cannot atone for the sins of your family members. You can't be so nice to them, so self-sacrificial to them that they get in by your exceedingly good works. They only only, only get in on Christ's work and they must receive that by faith. Real faith, the kind of faith that is demonstrated in obedience. And if you're one of those, just in case, if you're one of those who's here this morning hoping that you are going to get into heaven by mom or dad's good graces, it won't work. Not for anyone. You need the Heavenly Father's grace. You need to know Jesus. You've got to trust in his work for you. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. There's no other way to salvation. And that's a sermon in itself, isn't it? But we have, we have our second principle. The second principle we draw from this passage. We're just one verse in. Praise God for his word. The second principle we draw from this passage is that Jesus' mission takes precedence over his blood relatives. And we, we saw that somewhat in verse 46. 
Look at verse 46 again. The fact that Jesus is teaching instead of spending time with his mother and brothers gives us a clue that he's prioritizing his mission. Remember, he is the firstborn son of the family. And by most historical accounts, Joseph has died by this time. The Bible doesn't tell us that, so we don't know for sure if that's true. But that would explain why Jesus' mother and brothers are there and not Joseph. And Jesus being the firstborn son means he is now the patriarch of the family, the man of the house. That means he would be responsible to care for his mom and his younger siblings. But he's not doing that. He's left everything behind. And he's traveling in the countryside preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So so then contextually, we, we have this sense that he is already prioritizing his mission over his family. But in verse 48, Jesus really brings that truth home. Jesus asks that disturbing question, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? If if in verse 46, he's treating his family as outsiders, in verse 48, he's treating them as nobodies. It's like they're not there. Jesus' family has been eclipsed by his mission. His, His mission to gather for himself a people whom he will reconcile to the Father through his own death. And the priority of that mission has so diminished the role of his family... It's like they're not there. Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. I'm sorry, who? He hasn't hasn't forgotten his family. What he's doing for us is he's modeling what he's already been teaching us. Remember back in chapter 8, that disciple who wanted to stay in town and bury his father before he went to follow Jesus? Matthew 8, 21, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And what did Jesus say to him? 8, 8, 22, follow me. Leave the dead to bury the dead. That was harsh then. Seemed harsh, but think about what Jesus is teaching. Unbelieving family are as the dead compared to me. I'm more important. My mission is more important So so by treating his family as nobodies here, Jesus is modeling for us his own teaching. In Luke 14, 26, he told his followers, if anyone comes to me and does not, what? Hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And that word hate there doesn't mean really, really dislike. The usage of that word is, is, is to, to disown. So in the same way that will, Jesus was willing to disown his family for the sake of his calling, he teaches his followers, you have got to be willing to cut ties with your family to follow me. Jesus' mission to do the will of the Father by reconciling us to the Father takes precedence over his blood relatives. And in the same way, our calling to follow him, to live in joyful obedience to Christ, that always takes precedence over our family. Always. 
but there's nuance. You say, isn't there some, isn't there, aren't there exceptions to this? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible tell us about how to treat our family? Well, it does. There's nuance to this. One of the ways we live in obedience to Christ, in honor Christ, in follow Christ, is through the way that we love our families. And we see that throughout the New Testament. There are numerous passages that teach husbands just how to love their wives. And there, there are numerous passages that tell wives just how to love their husbands. And the New Testament teaches us how to honor our parents and raise our kids. It's not like the family has gotten totally erased. But this side of Calvary, the why has changed. In our, in our old lives, before we came to Christ, when, when we loved and provided for our families, it was for our glory. It was for our legacy. Every sociological study ever done has, has shown us, no matter what culture you're in, it is beneficial to you to have a functioning and prosperous and healthy family. Everybody everywhere understands that. That's a universal value. You don't need Jesus to teach you that. We don't need the Bible for that. We understand that. That is, that is a, a part of what it means to be human. But being born again into Christ, the new humanity, it means that, that now you belong to Christ and that all you do is not for your glory but for His. So now as a husband, loving your wife means you're proclaiming the gospel whenever you act selflessly towards her. And wives, whenever you submit to your husband, you are showing the gospel to those around you. It's not for your benefit. It's so your life reflects the gospel. Kids, your obedience to your parents, it still comes with that promise of a better life. That doesn't ever go away. So obey your parents. But the reason, the why, the reason you obey your parents now, if you're in Christ, it's because you are worshiping Christ through your obedience. Do you see the difference? Old self, my glory. New self, Christ's glory. In Christ, all things, his glory. Let's get to the third principle. Last one, but don't think it's short, it's long. The third principle we learn in this passage, number three, those who have God as their father have Christ as their brother and Christ's church as their closest family members. Look at verse 49. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. In other words, those people waiting outside, they're not my family. My disciples are my true family. Now, of everything Jesus has said in this passage, this is without a doubt the most offensive thing that he has said. Anybody listening would be truly shocked. And yet, for Jesus to say this, it's not rude. It's not harsh, and it's not an exaggeration. He's not just using this to, to, to teach a point to us. Remember, Jesus is coming to earth, God coming to earth, 
has redefined everything. Everything these people think they understand about the world they live in, Jesus is just turning it upside down. They think the temple is a sign of God's presence and favor to them. Jesus says, no, I am. They think that the the promised Messiah is going to throw off the chains of Rome. Jesus says, no, the promised Messiah is going to throw off your bondage to sin. They think that the Pharisees are the ones who are most honoring God. Jesus says, they are worshiping a God of their own invention. Christ himself is the true son of God sent from God. The people around him think that the family is the most important aspect of who they are. And Jesus says, no. It's not. To follow me. That is the new most important identity you will ever have. He is turning the world upside down. We miss the entire point of his life and death and resurrection if we try to turn it right side up and then fit him back in where we want him. We don't get to do that. That is not Christianity. Nothing will ever be the same now that Christ has come. When Jesus came as the Messiah, he brought the eternal reality of God's rule over heaven to earth. Being born into Christ means we now live in that kingdom where he reigns. He's not living in our kingdom. We can't domesticate him and move him to our kingdom. He's not just a good luck charm we can just add to our lives. The people who killed Jesus understood exactly how revolutionary he was. That's why they killed him. Dorothy Sayers, one of C.S. Lewis's best friends, said this in one of her compilation letters. It's called Letters to a Diminished Church. And this is a woman, an older woman writing, okay? So what she's about to say is not my words. She says, The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently pared the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. That's a hard word. But do you see what she's saying? Miss Sayers is saying, when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, our Messiah, we're confessing that we have died to this world and we now live in his kingdom. And in his kingdom, the very definition of family is not what it used to be. He has changed it forever. No longer are our closest family members those whom we share the blood of our parents with. No, 
Now our closest family members are those whom we share the blood of Christ with. Let me show you how this works. Fundamentally, Jesus Christ has elevated our existence above this temporal life into eternity. In eternity, all those for whom Christ died, all who share in his blood, they will be family forever. Forever. And forever is a long time. This life will be less than the blink of an eye compared to that eternity. You see the comparison? Blink of an eye, eternity. This world's blood relatives, eternity's blood relatives in Christ. There's an enormous difference. And Christ is pointing us to that reality when he's teaching us here. He's raising our sights. Raising our sights above this world. Look with me at verse 49 again. I want us to end with just this, this, this. I want us to really understand what he means by his family here. All right, so, so what is the mark of being a part of that family? Look at verse 49. It's to be a disciple, right? Stretching out his hands toward his disciples. He said, here are my mother and brothers. And who are these people? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Well, keep reading. Look at verse 50. Verse 50 says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what does it mean to be a disciple then? Well, to be a disciple means to live in obedience to God. Listen now, there are no disciples, zero, who are living in willful, continuous, consistent disobedience to God. None. If they are not obeying God, they're not disciples. Disciples must bear the fruit of obedience or they are not disciples. And the most fundamental, most foundational act of obedience to God is faith in Christ. That is first and foremost... God's will, the Father's will for you. John 6, 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what is the work of God? To to believe in Christ. To do the work of God, the will of God, is first of all to believe in Christ. But think about this. If belief is a work of obedience, aren't we then somehow saved by our work? Do you understand the question? If our our foundational work of obedience to God is faith in Christ, then is it our work that then saves us? Well, if belief, if if faith were something that came from you, then yes, you would be saved by your work. 
But our faith in Christ does not come from us. It is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not your doing. That's a gift from God. Our, our first act of obedience to the Father, our faith in Christ, what makes us disciples to begin with, that comes from God. That's our justification, our right standing before God. And then the rest of our lives of obedience are made possible through our trusting in Christ's work. But by his self-sacrifice on the cross, he defeated the power of sin. So then to do the will of the Father begins with trusting in Christ's work. You can't do anything else. You can't do anything else that the Father wills of you if you are not first transformed by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. But once that has happened, once you are a disciple of Christ, you will live in obedience to God. You will. Remember the good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit thing that Jesus taught us? Once by faith you are made into a good tree in Christ, you will bear good fruit. Having believed on Christ, you then desire to do the rest of the will of the Father. And what's that? What is that good fruit? Well, think of it this way. What are the evidences of being a part of Jesus' family? Well, we bear the family resemblance. And without a doubt, love is the most defining characteristic of the eternal family, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus obviously loves his disciples. When we look at our passage this morning, you can see Jesus loves his disciples. I think we miss that because we, we see the shock of what he's saying. This isn't my family. This is my family. It, it, it feels to us like he's repudiating his mother and brothers. But more than that, we should see just how much he loves his disciples. He calls them his mother and brothers and sisters. And he risks his relationship with his earthly family for them. Ultimately, he's going to die for them. Jesus loves his disciples. So, so we can conclude then that to love those who belong to Christ is important to him. To love those who belong to Christ is to bear the family resemblance, to bear good fruit. Secondly, though, and this is a simple one, to pursue holiness is the will of the Father. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your increasing holiness in Christ. That's the will of God. So faith in Christ, that's obedience to the Father's will. Loving one another, that's obedience to the Father's will. And growing in holiness, sanctification, that is obedience to the Father's will. That is the life of of a disciple. Those who are the character those are the characteristics of God's family. Now I told you at the beginning that Christ's reordering of things made it so that our new priority goes God and his family first and others second. Do you remember that? You're like, well, he hasn't talked about that yet. 
Last paragraph. Let me wrap that up for you. This is where it all comes together. If by obedience to the Father, through the power of the Spirit, your faith is in Christ, the Son, you've been reborn, recreated into Christ's family. The eternal family. Father, Son, and Spirit. That's your new reality. And all of us collectively that have been born into that family or adopted into that family, as Paul says so often, we are called the church. And because you cannot divide God from his family, our new number one priority is God and his family. To treasure Christ and through treasuring him to love the church he loves and to love the father he loves by pursuing holiness, that is our new family life. And because the love that this eternal family has for one another cannot be contained, we love others too, inviting them into this family through Christ. Because Christ has changed everything. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that your willingness to say hard things can so transform us. Thank you for your word that we get to hear these unusual teachings that change the world. 